Hello and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, And today we're kind of going to go over kind of just basic evolution, even though we've kind of covered it a little bit, and survival superpowers. You know, imagine that you had a way to, right in the moment of survival or death, change your fortunes. There are organisms that have that power, and we're going to kind of go into a story about one. So we've already seen the basic principles of evolution act on cancer cells. And we can kind of go over it again. So you can imagine cancer cells, you can imagine a, you know, a herd of animals. But in populations that exist in an environment, there is, you know, there are many organisms in this. And each one is fairly different from one another. So there's this uh, genetic diversity in populations. That diversity is powerful because when the environment changes suddenly, those organisms that have advantageous traits, which are, you know, usually genetic, those are the ones that will survive those new conditions. And those that do not will be selected against, and they'll die. And they won't pass on any, any offspring. The successful organisms that have the good traits, they're going to pass on more offspring, and eventually that's going to be the whole population. The same could happen to humans, for example, if there was some terror disease that swept through 95% of the population the 5% of survivors that were resistant to this terror disease would, you know, essentially procreate. Their offspring would be resistant and, you know, humanity would live on. This actually also highlights why heredity is such an important thing in that a lot of people used to believe that traits were just random. Didn't matter who your parents were, you know, just random things popped up a lot of the time. But in the case, in this case, it's, it's good because parents giving rise to resistant and good offspring, you know, that carries that legacy on and allows the survival of a full species, even if it does have to undergo a large change. So sometimes there are more random examples of how evolution can work. Um, sometimes there's just like a catastrophic event, for example, say you're on an island and a volcano explodes and the island organism, say that it's um, like a bird population, let's say 95% of them are swept away, you know, by this volcano. The 5% that existed, maybe they are actually like a different color or something. Like most of the birds were blue and now the ones that survived just happened to be yellow. That's what we call a bottleneck. And that happens sometimes too. And that's less directed. See, there was no advantage to being yellow, but with the way the world works, sometimes that's how things, how things go. And if a trait like being yellow doesn't have any disadvantage, nothing's going to change it. So there are pretty overall good rules that we can follow with this process. And it definitely doesn't, you know, exclude, you know, any human beliefs, you know, you know, I, I definitely don't think that knowledge like this or this process needs to ever be like a controversial, controversial thing. Like I said, we see it in viruses that infect humans. We see it in cancer tumors, you know. And we see it just out in the wild. So one of the cooler things, and another cancer kind of drawing again, is something called convergent evolution. Essentially all this is, and it sounds fancy, is just that evolution directs towards the same set of traits that work. The same set of stuff that works is usually going to be seen in similar organisms. Because it works. So... One of these examples is that when DNA was starting to become a lot more hot, you know, we, we were figuring out all this stuff. We were, you know, we were uh, sequencing all these genomes and we we're sequencing all these animal genomes. 
we actually found out that falcons and hawks, which we assumed because they look so alike, were going to be really close genetically. We found out that they are not even close genetically. They're actually from different families and they split far long, you know, a really long time ago. They were not recent cousins. But convergent evolution dictates that sharp talons, amazing eyesight, huge wings, those are always going to be an advantage. This is actually really cool because this can translate to the idea that if we ever do encounter extraterrestrial life, we can probably assume, you know, it's going to look like something we've, you know, could imagine, essentially. Because at least if you assume that environments in the universe are similar enough to Earth's, that the traits that make organisms on Earth successful would probably find their way and be successful in organisms on another planet. So, as you know, at least if at least if life managed to emerge on a planet like that. That's a whole other story, though. Cool thing again with convergent evolution. This happens in tumors. Tumors follow a... You know, there are specific strategies that tumors use when they are confronted with chemo or other types of therapy. And different types of tumors still use the same types of essentially, you know, advantageous traits that they select for. So anytime you attack a tumor, it usually selects something within the same repertoire. You know, like a talons on a falcon or a hawk, tumors, for example, can, you know, select for cells that are camouflaged from the immune systems thanks to certain cell receptors on their surface. Or in some cases, this is super bad, is when cancer cells develop the ability to use some of their molecular pumps on their surface to actually pump out drugs that go in and attack the cancer cells, and nothing happens then. Another way that they can get rid of drugs is that they can kind of engineer enzymes to be on that normally aren't on in that kind of cell, and those enzymes break things down, and sometimes those enzymes can break down the drug that you're sending in. Super bad again. And, you know, other common ones including adjusting their metabolism to fit their needs. You know, they can eat certain things that they're not usually used to eating. They can kind of inspire through chemical signals blood vessels to come towards the tumor and invest more resources in them. And, you know, another one is they can survive in conditions of very low oxygen. And that's a really big advantage because most of your cells cannot, especially your immune cells. And a really selective and a very cool method, and, you know, not, not cool to say this is good, it's not, is that sometimes the cells can go into a state of what we call quiescence. So they essentially revert back to that cancer stem cell phenotype that we talked about. Remember, you can't call it cancer stem cell. There's some, some issues with that. But what these aggressively dividing and surviving cells can sometimes do is, in a population that's being attacked by, cancer, by chemo, if they revert back to a state where they're no longer growing aggressively, they can essentially just freeze and not move, and the chemo will essentially just miss them. Because chemo and most of these inhibitors... They have, they're targeted against cells that are actively dividing and aggressively dividing, surviving, things like that. So quiescence is especially dangerous. The idea that a cancer cell that's aggressive can go back to its precursor state that was not aggressive. Very cool thing. I'm blanking on anything in nature that can do, can do anything quite like it. So it's a very, very difficult thing. So we mentioned in the beginning of the episode superpowers of survival 
And what this is kind of the story is kind of starts with a scientific rivalry between Darwin and Lamarck, another scientist. So when Darwin came back from the islands, wrote the theory of species. Oops, sorry. I think I just messed up the title. Um, what he did by saying that there's variation in populations and the environment changes and those that are favored by the environment survive and that's it. Lamarck had a different idea. So where Darwin would say that giraffes, for example, the taller ones, as time went on in populations, they got to eat most because nobody was getting the top of the trees. They passed on more offspring because they were surviving better. They had longer necks. Their offspring had longer necks. Thus, giraffes became bigger, essentially. Lamarck, and this is usually a pretty, pretty bad example, but Lamarck essentially said that organisms will essentially will their own survival. They will will their way into an advantageous trait to survive. They will will their own survival. And somehow, this would be passed on. We know that this is laughable and that giraffes don't stretch their necks. Another good example is that if uh, an insect is being preyed upon, uh, like a moth species in a forest, if all these moths are white and the tree bark is black, there's no way the white moths can just will their way into turning their bodies black and hide for camouflage against the birds. There's no way that's possible. Um, you know, it's only possible if one of the moths happens to be jet black, and then all of a sudden it can hide all its offspring, move on. So Lamarck is largely disproved, except in these really, really, really strange cases, and that's where the superpower comes in. So... It's only a small story, so this will actually be a lower, smaller episode. But essentially once, and obviously many times besides this, but to tell the story. Essentially, let's say, and they did this, scientists get a population of yeasts. And yeasts are little small organisms. They make beer and all that, and they're involved. And they're capable of quite a bit of survival. You know, they're little small cellular organisms that can either pair as cells or they can exist on their own as cells. So they're pretty hardy. So what scientists did was put them on a little Petri dish. And on the Petri dish, you always have like a little layer of foods for them. Essentially, that's how the yeast grow. When scientists would take a cloned population, so like just a a rigid, uniform population of yeast. So they're all the same DNA. So nothing's changed in these ones. When they would take them out of the good plate, they would put them in a plate that lacked a specific nutrient called histidine. Now, they were under the assumption that if they put them in the histidine plate, there would be no growth on the plate. Nothing could survive. Nothing at all. Because without this nutrient, there was no way they needed the nutrient to live. To their surprise, when they opened up the, the, uh, the incubator 24 or 48 hours later, they actually found that there was a colony. And it was living. And it was growing. They thought it was impossible at first. They thought, how in the world would this happen? Because when they put the yeast on the plate to begin, they were all from the same progeny. They were all, they had the same genome. There was no variation in this population. It was the same. It was a clone, essentially. So they experimented more on this, and especially on this yeast sample that had changed somehow, and it was making histidine. 
They had no idea how they had, it had changed this. So when they compared it to its parent yeast that couldn't survive, to this superpowered yeast that did survive, what they found was that in the state of survival or death, when faced against a lack of histidine nutrient, all the yeast went into this last ditch effort called a hypermutative state. Essentially, they turned off all their DNA editing mechanisms, turned everything off in a last final stand to try and trigger some genetic change, some Hail Mary that could lead to some gene being off, some genes being on, that they could make their own histidine or perhaps live without it. And they found that this organism willed its own survival, essentially. Now, to a degree, this behavior had to have been selected probably a long time ago, and it only lays dormant when the environment is so extreme that it would otherwise starve. But I've always thought it was an amazing story of just, you know, sometimes there are moments that, and there are even mechanisms like we saw, that can kind of defy what's supposed to happen. And there are superpowers like that, and the hypermutation is one Hypermutation sadly carries on in disease as well, just like, you know, in cancers, HIV especially. For example, HIV turns off a lot of its DNA editing mechanisms when faced with the immune system. And because of this, the appearance of the virus is constantly changing. That's why our immune system can never handle it, is because it's fighting a different virus every two to three days. And consequently, hypermutation, we would find out later, is actually used in our B cells. So remember I told you about this in the immune system. Our B cells and our B cells alone go into a hypermutation state for just a brief period when they're all fighting over that, uh, that antigen. They all want to gobble it up. They all want to target it. And to do that, to have the best binding antibody, they switch off. They switch into that hypermutation state. So it's not like a crazy thing, but I always loved it because it was this... And it always, you know, this is what drills home for me. What is life? Life is survival. Life is something that, you know, you would do anything to, to persevere through. I don't know. It's hard as a human to relate, you know, to a yeast, obviously. And I think the equation changes with humans. And I know that I use human examples in this a lot that probably have a lot of caveats. But it's like I've always said in the, from the beginning... It's something cool for you guys to all think about. I think I love sharing about it. Um, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed it too. Never looked at yeast the same way again, right? Huh, Scout? Oh, sleeping. Shoot. <laughs> Any case, thanks so much for listening again. I hope you enjoyed the story of the superpowers of survival. And until next time, have a good night. Bye.